I'm Lisa Stone. Thank you for joining us for this edition of Parenting Aces. Welcome to the Parenting Aces podcast. I'm your host, Lisa Stone, and I'm so excited to have you back with us or with us for the first time this week as we get into chatting about what we have to learn from great coaches through sporting history. And we have with us this week Chris Trieste, who has written a new book. But before I get into that, I want to just tell you all a little bit about what went on over the weekend for me. I had the opportunity to attend and be a presenter of sorts at the Society for Tennis Medicine and Science, STMS, conference in Hilton Head, South Carolina, and what an amazing experience. Not only did I get to connect with some people that I've only connected with via social media or on the phone or email, but I also got to meet lots and lots of new folks, many of whom you may see or here, as the case may be, on the Parenting Aces podcast in the near future. So I wanted to just thank Dr. Neelu Janthi, who listeners of this show are very familiar with. Dr. Jay's been a guest on our podcast many, many times. But Neelu is the organizer of the conference, the STMS conference. He is the head of STMS right now and is doing an incredible job of making sure that those in the medical profession who deal with the treatment of tennis injuries are up to date on all the latest research and technology available to them and then sharing that information not only with the medical community but also with parents and coaches. So thank you, thank you, thank you to Niru. I loved being part of the conference and hope you'll invite me back again. So that said, what about this week's guest? Well, as I mentioned, Chris Trieste has a new book out. It's called 14 Great Coaches, Learn Their Lessons, Improve Your Coaching, Have a Lasting Impact. And Chris is a former college player, so he knows what he's talking about when it comes to tennis. He has done a ton of research and talked to many, many different coaches. He chose 14 of them to feature in his book, and he's going to talk to us this week about what he learned and how we can use what he learned to do a better job both as tennis parents and coaches. So sit back, relax, and enjoy this week's podcast with Chris Trieste. Chris Trieste. Thank you so much for joining us on the Parenting Aces podcast. I'm thrilled to have you. Oh, uh, thank you very much, Lisa. It's a pleasure to be on, and thank you for having me. Well, I have to just kind of share with the audience the way you and I kind of connected was that uh, you sent me an email, and you have a, a book out, and I won't say new because by the time this airs, I'm not sure how new it is, but it was chosen as one of the recommended books by Changing the Game Project, and my audience hopefully is familiar with Changing the Game Project since I've had John on the show several times, and I share his articles and information all the time on our Facebook and Twitter feeds, but um I was just so thrilled to hear from you, and I have such respect for John and the fact that he singled out you and your new book uh, is is just thrilling. So congratulations on that. 
You know, Lisa, that was very exciting news. Uh, you know, I he sent, at some point sent an email congratulating those authors who whose books made the list, and and I was happy to see I was one of them. Uh, so it was one day I just you know you open your email, you don't know sometimes what to what you'll see, and um, but that was a very nice email to receive. Well, great. And so before we jump into your book, 14 Great Coaches, I want to just give you an opportunity to share with my audience your life in tennis, your background in tennis, and then hopefully that will give everyone a little bit more insight as to why we're having our conversation today. Sure. Excellent. Excellent, Lisa. Uh, I guess I guess I'll start uh, from the beginning, which would make sense. Uh, I started playing tennis uh, relatively later than, than a lot of other people who've, uh, you know, who play high school and then college tennis. But I was probably about 12 or 13 years old when I began. And I really don't know. I, I started in a public parks program, just a town recreation program that had uh, tennis lessons in the summer. You know, it was about the time when uh, John McEnroe and Jimmy Connors and Martina Navratilova uh, were, were popular and they were they were appealing as players and um, you you know I guess watching some of it on TV piqued my interest and and I signed up for these lessons and started playing like I said just before high school but but really took to it and and liked it and played four years of high school tennis and then four years of college tennis at Marist College which is in uh, Poughkeepsie New York which is which is not too far from where I'm from I'm from the Hudson Valley New York uh, region. And uh, after that, um, I took a little break, but never a total break from tennis. But I started my full-time career in, as an educator for a little bit over 20 years. My full-time profession has been in education, where I started as a physical education teacher and then went into school administration, where I've held positions such as assistant principal, director of athletics, and now I'm a director of coordinator of physical education and health at, at a district in, in New York. But I've had kind of uh, parallel type careers. I did coach. I did maintain my interest in tennis, as I mentioned. And along the way, I coached high school tennis. I coached for a while at private clubs. And then for six years, I coached at Mount St. Mary College, which is, I was the men's tennis coach, which is in Newburgh, New York, uh, Division Three school, small Division Three school in Newburgh, New York, where we, uh, like I said, I coached for six years there. I had the good fortune to twice be named co- uh, the conference coach of the year for men's tennis. And in my last year, uh, we won the conference championship, which was a first uh, in men's tennis for the school. And it was around that time that uh, my kids were, were kind of getting involved in youth sports. So I was getting, felt like I was being pulled in multiple directions. So having a physical education background and an athletic interest, I was involved with youth sports for, for about 10 years. And, and multiple sports at that, sometimes as the head coach, sometimes as, as an assistant coach, sometimes simply as a sports parent and chauffeur. So that um, combined with my profession, of course, took a lot of time. And, and at, at that point, I, as the youth sports, youth coaching kind of took a larger role, tennis kind of took a back seat. But now for the last couple of years, um, I've been for about the last two years, two, three years, I've been working I've been increasing my role again in tennis a little bit, and uh, I've been working doing private lessons and small group lessons at a at a club called Match Point Tennis, which is also in the Hudson Valley, where where we have uh, where it ranges from from you know high school very good high school players to uh, adults of various 
ability levels. Fantastic. So do you consider yourself a developmental coach or do you consider yourself, I mean, how do, how do you kind of frame your coaching area of expertise? Yeah, I would, I would say a developmental coach, you know, the, these, uh, the, the tennis players that we're working with now are, um, yeah, they're pretty serious high school players. Some of them aspire to play in college, uh, realistically, most likely a division two or division three level, but, but in this area, they're good high school players. They're, they have a high level of interest. They're competitive. They're, they're very coachable. So it's, uh, you know, it's a, it's a lot of fun working with them. We do certainly refine their their technique and their fundamentals, but a lot of it a lot of it is strategy. Uh, considerably uh, a considerable amount of time we're we're integrating the mental game into the program, and um, yeah, making wise choices and strategic choices as 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 a point develops. Like you know, some things that that you know when to go across court, when to go down the line, when to be more aggressive, when to you know hit more of a neutral ball. Um, you know, those types of things, you know, it just seems to be themes and concepts that we're, we're focused on pretty often. And, uh, when to come to the net, that, that's a, that's a, uh, that's kind of a favorite of mine, especially as, uh, as I mentioned before, somebody who kind of came into tennis in the, in the 1980s when the serving volley game and taking the net was more prevalent than it is now, um, I happen to be left-handed, so if you get me on the court with a lefty who's got somewhat of an aggressive mindset, I'll have a really good time with them. <laughs> That's awesome. I'm a lefty also. But oh, excellent. Unfortunately, I know, but unfortunately, I never really learned all those like things that make right-handed players go nuts when they're on the uh, court you with know, me. So. Uh, Lisa, yeah, so <laughs> if you're you know, on it. I, I am not, you know, I'm actually, I say with some pride, I'm not ashamed to say it. I get a lot of free points off of people who are really probably better than me uh, serving that lefty servant to the ad side. <laughs> I, I really did. Yeah. I got a lot of mileage at it and it didn't even matter that they knew it was coming. And then, you know, maybe 20, 30 percent of the time you serve it down the middle or at the body and, and just to keep them a little bit um, on their toes. But you could just pound away at that ad side uh, out wide. Yeah. And um, yeah you know, get a lot of points and come right up to it, you know, get up to the net right behind that. And you got a, some points that uh, are over in, in, in short order. <laughs> yeah, uh, that's awesome. That's yeah, awesome. Yeah. Well, let's jump into your book, Chris, because I, you know, that's the reason you're here today is yeah. to talk about this book and, and to really kind of delve into this idea of coaching as a, more of a general profession that, that that encompasses lessons that can be applied to all different sports, not just the particular sport that the coach happens to work in. And so you looked for your book, you looked at 14 different coaches from different sports. And I'm really curious what you were looking for as you chose the coaches to focus on in your book, 14 Great Coaches? You know, so the book, 14 Great Coaches, Learn Their Lessons, Improve Your Coaching, Have a Lasting Impact, that's the full title. And it, and it kind of, um, it, you know, I started the book, I don't know when I started, but, but back a couple of years ago, and I just started putting some ideas on paper, and it was sort of 
combination of ideas and concepts I was I, I was drawing from my different roles and and one as a teacher slash coach in, in the education world and in another hat kind of as a sports parent and then you had the youth coaching angle and then the tennis angle but I started to see some things that made sense and were kind of universal and and fit in nicely uh, maybe with some modifications but fit in nicely in all of those environments so I started putting some ideas down on paper. And then, but I did. I it still didn't have a, a, a framework with it yet. But one of my hobbies, I guess uh, you call it a hobby, is, is I do love to read about different coaches and successful people. And so I started reading about John Wooden from from college basketball and Joe Torre, the New York Yankees manager, and uh, Nick Bollettieri from tennis, and then um, uh, Bill Walsh from football. And I start to find some commonalities and. And just maybe with some little bit of changes, but they start to look a little bit like some of the things that I kind of uh, advocated and I kind of thought was successful. So, so there's kind of emerging of some of my ideas and reshaping some of my ideas, and um, and, and kind of fitting them in, and and like I said, matching them up with some things that that people with with much more greater resumes than I have, that, you know, things that they believed and things that helped them to become successful. So, so the book focuses on fourteen. Uh, coaches, 14 great coaches, and there's 60 principles that kind of um, um, make up the book. And yeah, as you said, they're coaches from different sports, various sports. They're men, they're women, they're current coaches, they're coaches from uh, not too long ago, maybe a generation go- ago. And then there, there are a couple of coaches from two, three generations ago that are cited in the book. So it's kind of a combination of, uh, yeah, again, what I like to say, universal principles, uh, drawn somewhat from my experience, but but really shaped by uh, people who are who are all time greats. And um, you know, they're they're sixty in there, but they're you know they're you know I like to to talk about uh, a lot of them, but but you know there's there's you know one that comes to mind that that applies to any sport and whether it's a youth sport atmosphere, uh, team tennis atmosphere, individual tennis environment high school, college, but, you know, I'll give you one off the top of my head. The carrot is better than the stick. And that's a, a principle that, that comes from John Wooden, who won 10 NCAA basketball championships in 12 years at UCLA. And he was very my much. My alma mater. Your alma mater. Okay. Awesome. Yes. The, okay. So, yep, yep, yep. yeah, uh, you know, uh, if I could do some time travel and change a few things, I would, I would love to say I was a, that was my alma mater, <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, the, just the location of it and the weather and the history. Oh boy. <laughs> but, um, yeah. you know, the carrot is better than the stick. So he wanted to, he would always prefer to appeal to someone's sense of pride to help motivate them and, and their, their desire to be better as opposed to beating them over the head with a stick, uh, proverbially, uh, you know, so, so again, he tried to appeal to their sense to become better and to want to, to to please the coach and to want to push themselves as opposed to to kind of you know using intimidation. So that was one. And again, that that can apply to any sport and any age and all sorts of environments. And that's that's not to say that you can't you know be tough or you can't really be a little bit harsh at times on someone. But you know, whenever possible, he preferred the carrot over the stick. Yeah, that's a great one. And, you know, one of, one of my favorite stories about him is the fact that he used to make his team sit down together before practice or before a game 
and they all had to tie their shoes together. You love that story? Yes. Yeah, I do. When (laughs) I first heard that, I was like, that's the most ridiculous thing I ever heard. But then when I really delved deeper into it, you know, the whole idea that everything starts with your feet. If If your feet are not able to perform at their highest level, then nothing else can work either. It's the kinetic chain, right? Your feet are the thing that come in contact with the ground. And so if your shoes aren't aren't laced up properly, your socks aren't aligned properly, you know, you, you don't have the support that you need, then then everything else goes downhill quickly. Correct. And you get blisters and, and, and you're pain in your feet and you can't perform at the level you can, you hope to perform at. Absolutely. I, I, I love that story. I also read so in a similar fashion, um, at least the published, uh, reason he didn't want his players having long hair. Um, it could have been cultural too, but, uh, the reason, you know, that I had read was that that hair is flopping all around and the sweat all over the place. And, who knows? You may have to push your hair out of your eyes at some critical time, and you miss a pass, or you you can't you see something that you need to see that that kind of moves very mm-hmm. quickly on the court. So um, yeah, yeah, it's funny. I, I yeah, but I, there's it's all true, right? It's all yeah, there's a point to it, a, a real logical point to it that affects performance. Exactly. Exactly. But, you know, exactly. Yeah, it's, it's amazing. He was uh, he was something else, and and you know, there's a lot of a lot of books that he wrote or were bu- written about him, but there's you know, so much you could learn. And, and, you know, another one here, here's another one that applies to tennis, to baseball, to basketball, to, to again, all different age levels. And he, it's hard to believe you could win 10 championships in 12 years and not stress winning and not, you know, he, he was all, and I've heard this from so many people that, that I believe it, but it seems so hard to believe that he, he like almost never talked about winning. And it was always about the process. And, and playing to your potential and and practicing properly and doing the best you can. And if you do that over and over and over enough times, well, you you will win, you know, or you'll give yourself the opportunity to win. And um, you know, that's another principle that that you know, I've seen in other places too, but but it's certainly one that he strongly believed in. Yes. And you know, it's it's interesting cuz we we do talk about that whole process versus outcome-based coaching and parenting uh, on Parenting Aces. It's, you know, it's kind of a, a big theme around here. And I think, you know, to hear it applied in another sport um, by someone outside of tennis hopefully helps stress the the validity of it, the importance of it. And I think the more we can try to stay focused on the process versus the outcome, the better athletes we are going to turn out and the better human beings we're going to turn out. Without, without question. You know, I have, so I have this experience in tennis, uh, but two, I have three children, two boys and a, and a girl. My daughter has done rowing. She, she's participates in crew and the two boys chose baseball. And certainly in baseball, I see this analogy you can hit the pitch the right way. You can see see the pitch. You can take a solid swing. You can hit really hard, and the shortstop jumps high in the air and and catches it, and you're out. And um, so sometimes the batter walks back in frustration. But again, if if you take that, if you swing at the proper pitch enough times, if you hit it with that kind of velocity enough times, that that's all part of the process. 
you've got to believe that you're going to get enough times where that ball is going to go over the shortstop's head and he can't catch it, or it's going to fall into a gap. So that's, you know, it's again, a process versus an outcome. And again, with tennis, certainly you could serve the ball right where you want it, or you can hit the ball. It lands an inch from the baseline and you could have done everything right. Technique wise, you could have followed it up to the net or, or whatever. You could have followed the game plan. But if that player crosses the net, comes up with some amazing lob, and you're caught frozen at the net, and there it goes over your head. Uh, you, you, you know, again, you got to believe that if you hit the ball the way you did in that instance over and over and over again, you're going to win your points and your games and your sets and so on. Right, right. I had a coach tell me, actually, as part of a, my women's team, that sometimes you just have to say, nice shot, ma'am. <laughs> absolutely absolutely Sometimes you you've you've done everything right like you said you know you've created the opening you've gotten the shot you want you've executed your shot and I, by some miracle the person on the other other side of the net not only tracks it down but responds with an even better shot and wins the point point. and as frustrating as that can be if you are focused, as you're saying, on the process as opposed to the outcome of that particular point, it gives you the freedom to say, nice shot, ma'am, and move on to the next point because you know you've put in the work. You're going to get the opportunity again and again and again, and the person on the other side of the net hopefully isn't going to be able to come up with that winning shot again and again and again. But if they are, okay, there's another match on another day. And I, I'm, this is one of the reasons I love Rafael Nadal so much is to be in the, the interview room with him after a loss is unbelievable. The guy, you know, he is one of the best that I've ever seen at being able to say, you know what, today wasn't my day. The guy on the other side of the net played better. There'll be another match tomorrow. And he just doesn't get bogged down in, in wins and losses. And it's just, it's fascinating to me. I agree. Absolutely. Absolutely. He doesn't get bogged down in it, yet he's one of the winningest players you'll ever find, right? So it's, it's Exactly. It's great. Yeah. yeah. So it works. <laughs> yeah, I agree. Oh, yeah, absolutely. About- it sure does. It sure does. Yeah. Talk about some of the other coaches that you studied and some of the lessons that you've learned from them. You know, here's one that um, uh, Nick Balateri, to use a tennis example. So I did a bit of reading and talked to some people who have some firsthand experience with him. And, um, you know, one of the things that came, uh, was very clear, was was his passion and his energy. So that's uh, something, again, that can translate to any sport and any age. but you know, if you, you know, you occasionally you'll see a coach who, who expect has high expectations and expects their players to be very enthused and to be very passionate and very energetic and very positive yet, yet they don't always model that. So, um, you know, I certainly believe that, that a high level of passion and energy and enthusiasm is infectious. It sets a good example and, and people feed off that feed off it positively. And that's, that's a lesson that can be taken from Nick Bolletari, other coaches too, but he's the one I cite and kind of uh, uh, look at a little closer as far as that attribute attribute goes. Um, so, so that's something that could be learned. There's another there's another lesson that I think is uh, very important too. You know, coaches coaches being the the instructors, the educators, and the experts. 
Sometimes you'll see coaches who kind of go on a little bit too long and maybe like to hear themselves talk a little bit, or sometimes they come up with these super, super intricate plays or strategies. But there's a coach that uh, is well-known and an all-time great coach, Vince Lombardi, who was the uh, one of the two first two Super Bowls as the head coach of the NFL Green Bay Packers. And, you know, he's an example of somebody I have in the book that he's from a different time. So 50, 60 years ago, they, they did things a little bit differently and it was harsher and, and, and sometimes brutal and, and tough. So he, he'd have to modify his ways if he were to coach in today's world. But one of the things he did that is appropriate then was appropriate then and is appropriate now was he was, he advocated keeping things as simple as they could be. So, you know, he had, he was known for, for a pretty small playbook and they just did the same thing over and over. And he, 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 he almost felt that if he made things too many layers upon layers on a certain strategy or, or while he was giving, given instruction, it just, it increased the chance that his players would do things the wrong way. So, you know, there's something to be learned there too. You, you know, game plans or strategies can become a little more complicated, but the lesson from him is keep things as simple as you can. Keep them as simple as possible, instructions as simple as possible, and and don't, for the sake of sounding smarter or or just for the sake of it, make things more complicated than they need to be. And sometimes, yeah, I think that's great advice. Yeah, and and look, there's a lot to tennis strategy, but sometimes you know you can just go out there and tell somebody, hey, the bottom line is hit the ball over the net one more time than your opponent. And, uh, exactly. yeah, it's not, it's, uh, it's not as easy as it is to say, but it's not as easy to do as it is to say, but, uh, yeah, sometimes you boil things down to the simplest, uh, way you could put it. Absolutely. Well, of all the coaches that, that you looked at, if you could pick one that as a coach yourself, you would model yourself after who would that be and why? I would have to say Pete Carroll, who is um, the head coach of the Seattle Seahawks. And and I'm going to also, this may not sound like great news to you, but he was the coach at USC, as you may know. And he is one okay, of the... Okay, well, well, okay, wait. So <laughs> let me just say, yeah. my daughter, what, okay. my oldest daughter, is a Trojan. Oh. She was at USC when Pete was the football coach there. And she... She, in her whole life, never could have cared one iota about sports of any kind, but especially football. She thought it was the dumbest thing ever. And when she got to USC, she became the most avid Trojan football fan you have ever seen. She knew every stat of every player of every game. She knew everything there was to know about Coach Pete Carroll. And to this day, she's been out of college several years now. She still, she lives in Los Angeles and she goes to almost every home game and even travels to some of the away games. Oh, that's awesome. um, So I will tell you, we were a house divided when she was in college. (laughs) Um, it was, it was a little tough, but it was hard not to get caught up in her enthusiasm for Pete and that Trojan team. So, um, yeah, I, I, I became a fan, I have to say. Oh, that's awesome. Yes. So he coach of the 
NFL Seahawks has won a Super Bowl. When he was at USC, they won a national championship. Uh, do you happen to know what his favorite book is? I do not. Oh, the inner game of tennis. I do Absolutely. know that. Yes. Isn't that something? So I he, don't know so, why, how I know that, but I just pulled that out of somewhere. Well, you knew it. You were right. <laughs> he does talk about it though. So he, mm-hmm. you know, he's a coach that, that I do high, think highly of. So he, you know, he came of age in the 1970s and he, he kind of studied uh, Maslow and Maslow's theory hierarchy of needs and you know the psychological needs and and all that stuff before you know you need to have certain needs first before you can go up the ladder and um, fulfill your potential so he was he was very much a fan of the positive psychology movement at the time and he tells the stories in the 1970s in the world of football that really wasn't uh, espoused so he you know it was all this new age gobbledygook you know according to some people and the old school football coaches but he tried to to find his way to to impart some of that into his coaching when he was a young assistant coach and you know he moved up the ladder gradually eventually became a head coach he's also he's a, he's an interesting story too because uh it failed might be a strong word but he was fired twice uh once as the head coach of the New York Jets and once as the head coach of the New England Patriots and then after a year or two off, he gets the job at USC, and the rest is history. Uh, you know, as as we noted, he won championship there, and then at, with the Seahawks. But but he kind of really formalized a philosophy. So he had he had a philosophy of coaching, and 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 he did that in the interim at, between being fired from those jobs and re-entering the coaching world. So he kind of fine-tuned his vision and his way of doing things, and and what he wanted to to impart, and how he wanted to coach, which is a lesson. Again, that's a good lesson for coaches of any sport. But um, you know, I like him because he he does have a way of keeping people accountable yet keeping things fun. Um, you know, as you just said, that was a great story. He he inspired people who had no interest in football in coming to their games and becoming football fans. Um, so he, you know, he really has done a lot of lot of good things. Um, you know, be in the present. He's another person who yeah, you know, in all sports, a lot of sports, somebody messes up. A lot of times they're used to walking to the sideline or during the first next break or timeout getting chewed out. But he very much was opposed to that method. He's okay. Somebody drops an easy pass. When they come to the sideline, we're going to talk to them. We're going to teach them. We're going to tell them where they went wrong and how they can do better next time. And in a way that they will be listening and, and in a way that they're not insulted or intimidated or belittled. So, um, yeah, I, I'm a fan of his. That's awesome. And so as as a tennis coach, how do you take those lessons and implement them with the kids and the adults that you work with? Yeah, so it's, um, you know, oh, the other thing, yeah, this is, is tied into Pete Carroll, too. So this is something important, and I do work with uh, students I teach uh, to be in the present. So that, that point that you just lost or that you messed up on is done. You cannot do anything about it. You cannot go back in time. Now you can learn from it and maybe do things a little bit differently, but you have to be of the mindset that, that that next point is the most important point. You can't go back in time. That mistake that you made or whatever misfortune you had on that last point or last series of points cannot infect the next series of points or the next point. You have to be able to clear your mind um in quick fashion maybe take a little lesson from it but 
reset and be ready because that next point is the most important point. Right, right. And so how do you teach your your students that lesson? Because I, to me, that's one of the hardest things about our sport is we don't have a coach out there with us to say just that, you know, at that yeah. point in the past, move on. This next point's the most important one. You know, we have to be groomed as tennis players to be able to to recall that information and tell it to ourselves quickly, <laughs> you know, in the 20 seconds in between points. Yeah, so, process it and, and do it quickly. Um, it, so it is very tough, but we do do it in our in our uh, clinics, in our uh, when we do match play, that portion of the lesson or the clinic, that's kind of when we do it. And that's when we do the coaching and it's, it's after the point and it's, you know, it's not an official match of any sort. So we do have a lot more freedom. Uh, to do to do that, just walk up on the court and explain. Hey, did you see what happened there? And and kind of ha- use it as a teaching moment. So the best thing I think you could do is is try to try to train players to recognize that on their own because they're going to have to, right? So, um, you know, if if some of those strategic lessons and some of those mental game type of lessons on how to let the past go, how to refocus. You know that those the visualization. There, there are a few things there we work on. That you know, it is up to that individual to to absorb it and to learn it and to be able to apply it independently. That that's for, certainly true. So that that does make our sport a little different, a little tougher. Yeah, and I think you know, as a coach, there is um, there's a big challenge there because when you're player goes into a, a competitive situation, whether it's a high school match, a college match, a well, college is a little bit different because yeah. they are allowed to have coaching, but, uh, you know, tournament play, you are hoping and trusting that that player has learned enough of the lessons that you've tried to teach them to find success on the, on the competition court, Right. Um, and I, I think that's so tough and I, you know, I think that's one of the things that's so hard for us as parents too, is having that trust in our kid when they go out onto that competitive court, um, that, that they can remember and recall these important lessons that they've been learning all along the way. And I, I, it's, it's very tough. Yes, yeah, it is very tough, and I yeah, I don't have a a simple answer to that. But it, that is that is a big challenge to for our sport, and that's one of the reasons. That's what makes it one of the reasons it's unique, right? It makes it a little bit unique and a little different. Um, yeah, the dynamic in college and high school tennis is a little different, and it allows for that for a coach to interject more. But in tournament play, it's uh, yeah, it's, it's that's why it's such a mentally tough sport, right? Sure. Sure. Did any of the coaches that you researched, did you come across any uh, advice or information on how they interacted or dealt with parents of players? Yeah, not, not, not so much in this book. Um, you know, uh, that that's, yeah, that's a minefield in itself, I think. Uh, <laughs> right? <laughs> now, what are you saying? What are well, you saying? <laughs> you know, so, 
So, so I could talk a little bit about that. My experiences as an as a sports parent, and then also as an athletic director and as a coach. Um, you know, it's it's tough. I've heard I, I've had coaches. You know, popular a popular stances for coaches to say I, I don't talk to parents or I don't deal with parents. But I don't know. I think that that's a little bit harsh. Um, you know, I do agree that that you should teach your child to to advocate for themselves or if there's a concern to to at the appropriate time, you know, teach them how and when to approach the coach and to express their concerns. I do believe that's that's an initial step, that's for sure. Um but yeah, there there's some high school coaches I've worked with who just very firmly would would say I don't I don't talk to parents, but you there these the athletes are minors at that age and they're at an age where parents still have to sign notes when they're sick and still have to sign papers when they get a bad grade or a good grade or still call them for parent teacher conferences. So I think that, or write a uh, check. yeah, write a check. <laughs> Absolutely. And I, I've heard that too from, uh, I've heard that from college coaches and that's, that's interesting too. Cause I, right here, but you expect the tuition money and you expect, uh, you know, any kind all this kind right. of support, but you won't take a phone call from a parent. And I, I always thought that was a little bit harsh. Um, you know, as a parent, I think you've got to respect the coach and there's a time and a place and a way to do it. Like, like I've always, as an athletic director, when I would talk to parents, you know, the moment the game ends is not the time to, to rush after the coach and express your anger or your concerns. Um, you know, so I've, I do have some experience kind of talking to parents about how and when and the right time. And then conversely too, I've, I've never thought that the right stance for a coach was to, to say, I don't talk to parents. I, I think it's a little silly. How did you handle that when you were coaching at the college level? You know, I uh, I got to tell you, when I was coaching at the college level, I you know I had um, you know I had, I had pretty good relationships with parents. It, it was good. I had supportive parents. Um, you know, I would I would talk to them before the matches, and and you know, some informal times. You know, maybe with you know after practice sometimes. You know, but they weren't that involved. I, I had a lot of good fortune in that way. Like I never had somebody I felt was looking over the shoulder, my shoulder, or was trying to to analyze who was playing what position. Like I never really can say I had that experience as a college tennis coach. Um, you know, I have had you know in more of a more of the uh, private setting. You know, parents ask questions about which court or which group their child was in, and and kind of try to push you a little bit on that, press you on on that situation. That they, you know, they always think their child's better and should be on another court or should be challenged more. Like those those conversations I've had. Um, but as a as a college coach, I really can't say I've had any bad bad um, experiences. As an athletic director, okay. yeah, I've had, I've had to work with coaches yeah. and parents through some situations as a, as an athletic director that I have had. And again, it's so, it's good. Yeah, go ahead. No, go ahead. No, I was just going to say it was it was typically conversations with parents that that it was you know you know give it twenty four hours, um, call the coach, you know, give them the number, you know, at a time when you're both hopefully level-headed you could talk through the situation and and hopefully take steps that'll resolve the issue or or get everyone in a better place um there are parents i've had parents oh i've I've been at the side of a baseball field when my son is playing and and his peers are playing baseball and and i had a parent come to me and didn't like the way the coach spoke to the players and i had a parent come to me and and this was in my hat my role as a parent um but that but the parent the other parent knowing my experiences 
came up to me and said, Chris, uh, give me one reason why I shouldn't march up to that coach after the game and give him a piece of my mind. <laughs> and um, the way the coach coached, I, I didn't blame him for wanting, for thinking that way and, and possibly taking that approach. And, you know, I asked him a couple of questions. And at some point I did ask him, I said, well, I use his son's name was not Tom, but I, but I used, let's use that. So it's Tom, I said, well, would Tom okay. want you to do that? You know, would Tom want you to do that? Or how would he feel if you did that? He's like, oh, no, no, he'd be mortified. <laughs> so um, I said, well, I think that's a big part of your answer. If your child's going to be mortified and it's the last thing he wants you to do, I don't think the right approach would be to aggressively confront the coach right after the game with parents, with your child around, and with his peers around. Um, and then, yeah, I did, I did talk to him a little bit about a better way to, to do it. And so how much of your coaching philosophy and approach now is a result of all of this research that you've done? I certainly, you know, have learned to, um, a few things. Uh, and I think, I think, I hope, I think I did this to an extent when I was younger, but certainly focusing a little more on the process as opposed to the outcome. You know, I'm definitely more uh, leaning in favor of the process and, uh, you know, some of the ideas we talked about earlier. Um, so that, so emphasizing the emph- uh, process over the outcome, that that is definitely a stronger, uh, a stronger advocate of that now than I was maybe when I was younger. Um, you know, getting out of the routine is another concept that I've learned through my research. So uh, I think there's a value to having very well-planned out uh, practices and having logical pro- progressions and and, and, a, and a total kind of a system that you're implementing. And, and again, routines are very good for athletes. They, they understand and kind of can see what's coming next. And, and that's kind of good. And it's good for a lot of reasons. But there are times I think you throw out the game plan or you, not the game plan, but the practice plan. Um, you know, I think that there's a value to that. There's a value to asking the you could you could manage the choices. You could kind of manipulate the choices, but you could give the students or the athletes options. Okay, we're gonna do one, two, three, and four. What order are we gonna do it in today? Or, you know, so it's not so they have some say into it. And, you know, that that getting out of a routine sometimes relieves some stress. It makes things a little more fun. Um yeah, it 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 breaks up like a um I don't want to say drudgery, but, but just, oh, the same old thing type of mentality. So that, that's mm-hmm. something too, that, that I believe in. Mm-hmm. And also yeah, another one. Both- yeah. yeah, no, sorry. Yeah, no, th- thank you. Um, another one I learned and, and not that I never, I didn't believe this before, but it's, it's higher on my radar now uh, is, is culture precedes championships. So that's something uh, I've read in a few places. But if you want to, if you want to win, if you want to perform at a high level, if you want to be perceived in a certain way, then, then that's going to come, or that that might come. But there are things you do. You act that way. You talk that way. You dress that way. You you have work habits. You know that that hopefully will lead to that. So, so there's a culture, a cultural shift sometimes, or a mindset shift that has to happen, um, that can enable championships or higher performance. Did you find when you were researching all these coaches that there was that there were more differences or more similarities between male coaches and female coaches? 
You know, I the ones I researched, I, I, I didn't find that many big differences, really. Um, I think, uh, Lisa, that we'll see, you know, you know, the, historically coaching has been dominated by men, right? And, and maybe it still is. Yeah. But um, so, yeah, so that, that may change or more evidence one way or the other may become more apparent as there are more successful coaches or hot, more numbers of female coaches. Um, but, you know, like, like two of the coaches I, I looked at, uh, Billie Jean King, who's known as a player more than a coach, but she's coached, uh, she's coached individually various players. She consulted with Martina Navratilova. She's coached Fed Cup. Um, she was one. Another one, Pat Summit, who was a basketball coach, coached um, for Tennessee women's basketball team for many, many years. And reading about those two uh, in particular, there were similarities with men. Like they, they did some of the same things for better or worse uh, than as their male counter- counterparts did. Interesting. You know, there's a lot of kind of momentum behind uh, women in the coaching world of tennis. And, and I think that's a really positive thing um, as a woman, as a parent of two women, I, you know, I'm always a big advocate of more opportunities and equal opportunities, I should say, for men and women out there. And I, you know, so I was I was very happy to see that you didn't only interview or research male coaches, but you also studied some female coaches as well. And I think that's really important. And, you know, especially for those of us raising daughters, I think we want them to have strong female role models out there. And for for our daughters who play sports, having female coaches who are effective and you know, are are well trained and and uh, know how to win, but also know how to develop athletes and and good humans is crucial. And you know, so I I'm I'm very happy that your book isn't only focused on the males. Yeah, no, thank you. I appreciate that, and I, I definitely wanted to do that. Um, you know, you know, as I'm, I'm sitting here, also thinking, I when I played tennis in college, I had. Uh, Three different coaches. It, it was they moved in and out quickly. But I had three coaches in four years. But for two of those years, it was a female. And I, I don't think ever. I certainly do this, and I didn't do this, and I don't remember ever on the bus, on the trips, at the practices, people saying, "Oh, what does she know? She's a woman." I never saw that attitude. I never had that attitude. If we ever uh, were resistant, it was because we thought it was a bad idea, <laughs> not because it was coming from a female. Like I never heard that, you know. Um, uh, never. Well, that's you know. good to hear. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I'm sure it happens in some places, but, uh, you know, I didn't think that. And I didn't, you know, I, you know, I, I never had the mindset, I'm not going to try that strategy or what is she, because, you know, a woman told me that strategy, you know, I, I would not think that. Mm-hmm. You well, know, but yeah, no, that's, that's good to hear. I mean, she was obviously hired because she knew her stuff and, um, you know, people, yeah. people look beyond gender and that's a, a really good thing. And, I think uh, we need to keep keep kind of pushing that message. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. It's not a it's not a gender issue whether or not you're an effective coach. It's it's whether or not you've done your homework, whether or not you've studied the sport, whether or not you've surrounded yourself with good teachers and good mentors, and uh, that can be accomplished by men and by women equally. And I think you know it's it's interesting to kind of start to see 
um, like the whole Amelie Moresmo coaching Andy Murray situation. Mm-hmm. You know, um, I think that's, I mean, it's, it's awesome, you know, to see a female coaching a top male professional. And I think that is opening the door to a lot more women getting into coaching. And, and I think it's a great field for women. So I hope, uh, I hope more follow in her footsteps. I uh, want yeah, to, before we close, yeah. Um, before we, we close, cause we're coming to the end of our hour. I wanted to just ask you if a parent were interested in picking up your book, which hopefully everyone listening to this podcast will be um, picking up your book, 14 great coaches. What lessons are there in there for the parents? Oh, that's and a great a, question. You're a sports parent too. You're, right, right. You know, so, yeah. So let me so let me put it this way. So so there's 60 kind of insights and lessons and concepts, as I mentioned before. So these are these are things that apply to coaching, but many of them apply to parenting. They apply to teaching. Uh, they can even apply to the business world. So if I'm a parent, I have no interest in coaching maybe, but I have a, an athlete in my house or a young person who's interested in, in learning how to play sports. So I, I would buy the book. I would pick up the book because it helps coaches become better coaches, but it also helps parents identify good coaching and identify maybe poor coaching. So so besides, as I said before, it's, some of these are human relations principles that will apply in the house as well. Um, but that that's one too. You know, so if you see some of these things, if you see you know a coach out there who's over complicating things, you know, as you're waiting to pick up your child or as you're watching from the sideline. Or, or if you see a coach who's just, just you know, has that overbearing, intimidated presence without any of the positive attributes to to counterbalance that, you know, you that might be something that that you see, you know, hey, wait, I gotta look closer at this, or maybe this coach isn't the best coach, um, or yeah, if you see the coach has practices and that's the same old thing every single time, so but you read my book about change, getting out of a routine or making things fun. So you read that in the book, but you don't see that. You know that's something that can help you again identify a uh, good coach or, or a bad coach or a good um, coaching environment or playing environment. So those are some of the things you can pick up from the book. Um, you know, there's another one. I'll mention this one too that it applies to the, to the to the field, to the home, to the classroom, whatever. But there's have you ever heard of the positivity ratio? There's there's some no. research done. Okay, so so. Uh, um, and it's cited in the book, and the it, the sources are in there, you know, in the back of the book. But there's a, there's a ratio, the ideal positive to negative ratio of 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 positive interactions to negative re- interactions are, is five to one. So there's research that says the highest performing teams or the ideal learning environment is five positive to one negative, and um, so so you know that's something I've also seen echoed by somebody like Phil Jackson, who coaches Chicago Bulls at the at the highest levels, the NBA and the Lakers. Um, you know Joe Madden, manager of the Chicago Cubs. So if I'm watching a practice, and you know as you get closer to one to one, three to one, the research shows that the that it, that's less than ideal that that they're mediocre performing or lower performing teams, and then inversely, the the lowest performing teams had a ratio of like nine to one negative, negative to positive interaction. So that's hmm. something, you know, as a parent, you can watch for um, in your child's athletic experiences. And, and five to one is very tough. It's very tough. You know, if you ever try to monitor that, uh, 
you know, so maybe three to one is more realistic, but whatever you find a baseline and you try to get closer to five to one, then, then, then maybe if you're a two to one right now, you know, that you start with where you are. But, um, and then interestingly enough, there is something that's too positive. So if you're in an environment, a team environment or athletic environment, you know, one to one, if I'm coaching an athlete, uh, on the tennis court, and the ratio is like 15 to 1, 20 to 1. Well, something may not be right there. Like, like maybe, maybe some of the tough conversations are being avoided, or maybe some of the um constructive criticism, or maybe some of the some reprimands even are are not being implemented when they should be. Um, so that that's a ratio that that is something to keep in mind. And and again, a parent can kind of keep an eye on that. Um, you know, especially, yeah. Some if, if we have co- if you've uh, the coach who has really no formal background in coaching or teaching or doesn't have a lot of really experience, that much experience working with kids, they may be doing some things the way they learned it 30 years ago, which was definitely a different uh, different time and things were done differently and things may have been accepted back then that aren't accepted now. So that's another thing to keep right. in mind. Yeah, no, that's great. Well, Chris, thank you so much for being on the podcast and sharing your new book with us and um, I, this honor of being chosen as one of Changing the Game Project books of 2017. I think it's just, you know, that's just awesome. And congratulations to you. Thank you. Thanks again, Lisa. It's awesome to, to be on the show. I, like I said, I'm a fan of the show and, uh, and it's been great talking to you. Thanks again. Well, thank you. And to my listeners, we will have links to Chris's website and a direct link to purchase his book in the show notes. So be sure and check those out. And Chris, uh, I hope you'll come back on the show. And as your book gains momentum out there and uh, you start to get more and more feedback, and maybe you decide to do a a second book, um, that you'll keep us in mind and, and come share with us again. Absolutely. Absolutely, Lisa. We'll do that. And I do have some ideas percolating. So uh, there's going to be a second book at some point. And uh, so I appreciate that. And uh, Lisa, you, you keep up the great work too. Thanks so much to my listeners. Thank you all so much for tuning in. And we'll see you next time on Parenting Aces. I'm Lisa Stone, and you've been listening to the Parenting Aces podcast. For tennis parents, buy a tennis parent. If you like what you've heard, please subscribe to us and write a review on iTunes. For more information on navigating the junior and college tennis journey, please visit us online at parentingaces.com. Thanks for tuning in and sharing us with your tennis community.